This is the final part of a series that we started, oh, I don't know. No, it wasn't seven years ago, Simon. <laughs> they just feel like that. Uh, anyone remember the seven parts? What was the first one we did? Yeah, this was only really to encourage myself, but I don't think. Second one, anyone? Anyone remember any of the seven? That's, well, that's great, because it, it means I can preach them again and you, you won't even know. <laughs> okay, well, this morning we're finally getting there to heaven. So we're going to look at what heaven is like, what we're going to encounter, and what we're not, not going to encounter. So let's just pray, and then I'm going to read you the whole of Revelation chapter 21. Father, we thank you for the amazing assurance we have that there is a purpose to everything and it's all brought together at this moment when we finally come home and enjoy an eternity with you. Thank you for those of us that know you personally. Something in our spirits rises and cheers and says yes when we read of these wonderful things. And it's all because of your goodness and your grace. And I pray now that you help me explain something way beyond my comprehension or understanding uh, sufficiently that it would inspire and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Revelation 21. Follow me if you want. If not, I'm going to read it slightly slower. Uh, there's always a temptation with a long passage to rush it, but actually there's so much in it and I'll be referring back to it. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. 
It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubics thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful, shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. This is our ultimate destination if we have made Jesus Christ our personal Lord and saviour let me ask first of all where and what is heaven romans 8 speaks about heaven being a restored earth how the earth groans waiting indeed heaven will be or the earth will be reformed as god originally intended and created it this old decaying earth will be replaced. We'll have no need for a green party, so to speak. But it's not just a new planet, but heaven will be where God is. It will be his dwelling place. Revelation, remember in verse 3, said, now the dwelling of God is with man. That's where heaven will be, where God is. Is. Let me read you from N.T. Wright's book what he says about heaven. He says this, Heaven is in fact one of the most misused religious words around today with a possible exception of the word God itself. The biblical notion of heaven is not of a place far away or way beyond and blue, nor is it simply, as some have said, 
in reaction to that older notion, a state of mind or heart which some people can attain here and now. Heaven is God's space, which intersects with our space, but transcends it. It is, if you like, a further dimension of our world, not a place far removed at one extreme of our world. We are reminded of it by the beauty of the created order, which in its very transient points beyond itself to the fuller beauty, which is God's own beauty, and which he intends one day to bring to birth, as we say so frequently on earth, as it is in heaven. The Christian hope is not then, despite popular impressions, that we simply go to heaven when we die. As far as it goes, that statement is all right, but after death, those who love God will be with him and in his dimension. But the final Christian hope is that the two dimensions, heaven and earth, at present separated by a veil of invisibility caused by human rebellion, will be united together so that there will be new heavens and a new earth. Not just will our planets and planets be restored their original beauty, but God himself will merge where his existence is known with ours and will dwell amongst us. We'll also be made new with imperishable bodies. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the groaning we do. Do you groan some mornings when you get up? Yeah. You see, you youngsters have no idea what we're talking about. But as you get older, it will come to you. You will think, oh Lord, (laughs) I could really do that imperishable body right now. Paul writes about our earthly tent is being destroyed and how we groan and wait for the new imperishable body. But we will know that body and have that body, a body that never gets tired, a body that never gets ill, a body that has no aches and pains, no needs of doctors or tablets. And so we see that heaven is the dwelling place of God, which will be amongst his restored earth, and indeed planets, and indeed his restored people in their new beautiful bodies. In verse 5 we read that God said, I am making everything new. Earth, you and I, relationship with God, relationships with one another, all these things will be changed and made new for all eternity. My mum used to describe eternity as imagine a brick a hundred miles wide, a hundred miles deep and a hundred miles high and every hundred years a sparrow comes to sharpen its beak on the stone. Eternity is as long as it takes that stone to wear away. But even that's not accurate, is it? Because ultimately that, that will have an end. Eternity has no end. We read also in verse 2 that there is a new Jerusalem a holy city. Now what, Paul, what uh, John is describing here is the church, the people of God, all of God's people from the old covenant and the new covenant, as depicted by the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. That was a Jewish way of speaking about the whole people of God. And this holy city, this new Jerusalem, will be prepared as a bride 
spotless of sin, holy, pure, beautiful, radiant, dressed in fine linen. Believe it or not, that's you and I together. Beautiful, dressed in fine linen. Amazing, don't you think? Wow, that's going to be us. And the image that John uses to describe us as a city is deliberate. For a city would speak of security. A city would speak of identity and belonging. A city would speak of community. We're not strangers together, but we're people belonging with identity and community secure. And this city is full of love, joy and peace. That is you and I. Looking forward to that. And having been through Judgment Day, as we would have been, which was one of the seven that you forgot, having been through Judgment Day and seen Jesus separating the sheep and the goats, those who, as we explained, who haven't made Jesus their personal saviour, and those who have, John describes the moment when we descend now with Jesus to the new earth and the new heavens. Having the glory of God in our midst, beautiful and radiant, the 12 gates and the 12 tribes inscribed as the foundations depicting all believers of all ages. This is us coming together to be this city that is secure. Nothing will enter us or enter the city. We read also in verse 22 that in this city, this people of God, there will be no temple. You see, the temple was a place on earth where God's presence resided. The Holy of Holies, if you recall from the Old Testament, an inner sanctuary where the high priest could enter, but only once a year and only following a series of rituals and preparations. Now, in this new city, there will be no need. Now God dwells amongst us. There won't be a temple we need to go to. For God will be in our midst all the time, not at a particular special moment and not in need of ritual offerings. God will be in our midst, so we don't need the temple. John, if you notice, gave details of the size and dimensions of the city, which you may think, well, that's an unusual thing to do. Again, remember, he's describing the people of God. And we would do disservice to the apostle if we try to picture this literally as though we all stand on each other's heads and form a great cube, for that is certainly not what he's describing. The city dimensions, if you notice, are a perfect cube, as high as it's wide as it is long. And, as I keep saying, John is describing the people of God. His readers at the time would have known that the Holy of Holies, the temple that they had in Jerusalem, was also designed as a perfect cube. But this new one is measured 
beyond measurement, or rather is expressed beyond measurement or calculation. This is massive. So he's taking the illustration of the existing temple and he's saying this new city, this new people of God will be perfect and beyond calculation. He continues by describing this city as having precious stones, jasper, sapphire, emeralds, etc. Again, drawing from the breastplate that the high priest would have worn when he went into the Holy of Holies once a year into the presence of God. He's saying, guys, what you see now is just a hint of what one day you will become. God will be in your midst. We are that place. We will dwell with the presence of God. No temple, no holy place, no high priest, but we will be beautiful, radiant, pure, and holy, for we are his temple. We are the holy place. We are the priests who minister in his presence every moment without any interruption. We will have the presence of God unhindered, unbroken, and intimate all the time. We will be sin-free, sickness-free, sorrow-free, and suffering-free, and any other S that you can add to that list. No sin will enter the people of God. Nothing unclean will be amongst us nor come to us. There'll be no guilt, there'll be no envy, no pride, no selfishness, no greed. For in God's presence there can be no sin and we will be like him, finally glorified and finally sanctified. Is it any wonder that John and the angels throw themselves down before the throne and worship him time after time throughout Revelation. What a sight, what a future we have ahead of us. But there's more, for there will be a new order of things. As I mentioned earlier, there will be a new body Let's see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, he writes this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, anim animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is the other, is another. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. 
The body that is sown is perishable, it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonour, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. We will be restored in the new order of things, and one of those will be a new body, in the image of Jesus. Now, some say that could be around the age of 33, but I don't know if you see me at 33, you wouldn't have wanted to look like me, I can assure you. But let's just say it will be at the perfect age and the perfect situation. But there's slightly more. Let me read to you what Wayne Gruden puts in his Systematic Theology. He says this, The fact that our new bodies will be imperishable means that they will not wear out or grow old or ever be subject to any kind of sickness or disease. They will be completely healthy and strong forever. Moreover, since the gradual process of aging is part of the process by which our bodies now are subject to corruption, it is appropriate to think that our resurre resurrection bodies will have no sign of aging. Hallelujah. But will have the characteristics of youthful but mature manhood or womanhood forever. There will be no evidence of disease or injury, for all will be made perfect. Our resurrection bodies will show the fulfilment of God's perfect wisdom in creating us as human beings who are the pinnacle of his creation and the appropriate bearers of his likeness and image. In these resurrection bodies, we will clearly see humanity as God intended it to be. But let's go on a little bit more. Paul also says our bodies will be raised in glory. When this term is contrasted with dishonour, as it is here, there is a suggestion of the beauty or the attractiveness or appearances that our bodies will have. They will no longer be dishonourable or unattractive, but will look glorious in their beauty. Moreover, because the word glory is so frequently used in Scripture of the bright, shining radiance that surrounds the presence of God himself, this term suggests that there will be a kind of brightness or radiance surrounding our bodies that will be an appropriate outward evidence of the position of exaltation and rule over all creation that God has given us. This is also suggested in Matthew 13 where Jesus says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And again in Daniel's vision when he says, And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now both of these statements might possibly be understood metaphorically, and in that case they would not indicate that an actual brightness or radiance will surround our resurrection bodies. But there is no reason in the context of either of them that would cause us to see them as metaphorical, and other pieces of evidence argue against doing so. 
The hints of the age to come that were seen in the shining of the glory of God from the face of Moses, and in a much greater way the bright light that shone from Jesus at the transfiguration, together with the fact that we will bear the image of Christ and be like him, combine to su suggest that there will actually be a visible brightness or radiance that surrounds us when we are in our resurrection bodies. Fascinating, isn't it? I can't picture that, but it's a wonderful image. So this body will be raised in power and brightness. This body, this new body, will have the strength to do everything we need to do or want to do. There'll be no more need for an early night. There'll be no superheroes. We'll all be able to accomplish all that we want to and need to. It will be a beautiful body. Different, but also the same. No nips and tucks. No wrinkles. No hot flushes. I hear the men cheering, never mind ladies. No spots. We won't need to try to look good. We just will be more glorious and radiant and beautiful than we can imagine. But another part of this new order of things is that there will be a great reunion. Because we recognise that Jesus, when he was resurrected, was recognised by his disciples. They saw him and knew him. And so we too will recognise those who love Jesus at their point of leaving this earth we will recognise them and greet them again. There's no indication that our memories are erased so that we forget those whom we've loved. Now, I'm not, I don't understand and I don't think the Bible's clear on telling us how we deal with loved ones who haven't made it through to heaven. There's, I can't find any reference to that, so please tell me if there are some. But I guess where there's no sorrow, there'll be a sense that Perhaps we won't know or won't remember. I don't know. That's an interesting conversation for the life groups when they get to meet soon. But we will recognise those loved ones. Remember, Paul in Thessalonians encourages us in our time of grief to actually remember that we will meet our loved ones again. So he must understand that I, for example, will see my mum again who for five years couldn't speak or communicate and lay in a bed. I never said goodbye to her. My next conversation will be, hello. And I'll see my dad again, out of his wheelchair, not popping 14 pills a day, running towards me. And you will see your loved ones who knew the Lord coming and running towards you. Let's ask the question in this new order of things, what are we going to do? Well, like Adam and Eve, we're going to work. We're going to develop. We're going to create. There's no curse on the land anymore. So toil, hard graft, is a joy and it will be fruitful. And as Paul tells us, we will exercise authority over angels. We will rule them, judge them. I suspect we will eat together. The Bible loves a good banquet. Jesus ate. He fished a lot. 
although I liked the way he fished. He didn't need a rod and a line. He just said, go and pick one out. That's my kind of fishing. He walked. <coughs> I suspect we may drink coffee. It's natural. We may enjoy a glass of wine. We may drink tea. We may drink chocolate and not put on weight. Who knows? All these things are natural. Where will we live? No idea. <laughs> the Bible doesn't, doesn't open that door for us. I'm not sure how we live, whether we sleep. I'm not sure. There's so much more to learn. But I know this. Wherever it is, wherever we reside, or whatever we do, it will be more glorious than anything we've ever known here on earth. Will we marry? Wait for it. No. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 that we won't marry. However, every relationship in this new city will be so much greater than the best possible marriage here on earth. So in a sense, the fact we won't marry won't lessen our expression or our receiving of love. It will intensify it and spread it. So we will love one another far more than we can comprehend right now. Will we have sex? I can't see that in heaven. I don't think our new intimacies and joy, uh, I think they will far outweigh any pleasure or joy that might be in sex. And also, I don't think we'll be reproducing, so can't see a need. Men and women together were created in God's image. And God said it was good. And in our new bodies, in the new order of things, in our new city, we, in our, we, <coughs> we will reflect God like something we cannot comprehend right now. <coughs> Together, men and women will reflect God. And perhaps some of the, one of the hardest points to comprehend is I need to talk to the men now. Men, when we're in heaven, we will finally understand women. <laughs> Hallelujah. Not sure that's necessarily going <laughs> to... But we will. And on behalf of all men, I say sorry we haven't understood you whilst we are on earth. Okay, so John continues in chapter 22 to describe a little bit more of what heaven is going to be, be like. Let me read you the first five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree offer the healing of the nations, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. In heaven there will be a river of life, pure and clear 
as crystal. It's the source of it is God's throne himself. He is our source of purity and indeed eternity. A life, a river that will never be polluted or never dry up. On either side of this is the tree of life, like the original tree of life in the Garden of Eden. A statement that our eternity is secure, always in season, always yielding fruit, an utter fulfilled life of joy, contentment, security and provision. And there'll be the leaves of healing on this tree. Not to say that we'll get sick and we need them, but to remind us there will be no sickness, there'll be no GPs, no hospitals, no tablets, never will we have a bad day or have to call in sick for something. There will no longer be any curse, referring to the curse that sin brought back in Genesis 3, the separation of God and man and woman because of our sin. But now there will be no curse, there will be no separation between us and God. There'll be no physical death and therefore there'll be no spiritual death because the curse is removed. And we will worship him. And sometimes we can say, say, replace that with we will serve him. To serve God is to worship. So we will worship him and serve, not in formal meetings. I don't know, maybe. I can't think, I can't see any evidence that somehow we'll gather together as one. But we'll worship him every moment of every day in everything we do. There will not be a moment that when we are not overwhelmed by his presence and intimacy amongst us. We will see him face to face. His name will be on our foreheads, not literally like a, a barcode, But what that is implying is we will know we're his. We will always be secure in the knowledge that we are his children, that he called me, he loved me. There will be no doubts. There will be no insecurities. Never will we need to say, does he really love me? There will be no doubts for his name is on our forehead and there'll be no night for his light will shine his radiance will shine there'll be no sun and there'll be no shadows and you and I if Jesus is our saviour will reign forever and ever and reigning speaks of exercising authority as well dear friends the Bible is a story of a paradise that was lost and then a paradise that was regained. In the Garden of Eden, God's beautiful creation was lost through humankind's sinfulness. And as a consequence, it was cursed. Cursed to decay in the creation, but also in humanity. Cursed with sickness and separation from the intimacy that God wanted with us. But it ends with a paradise regained. 
And that only happens through God himself in his mercy and love and personal sacrifice coming to earth and being born in the likeness of a child in order to give himself on the cross for our sins, to break the power and the consequence of the curse and fling open the doors for any who wanted to come to know Jesus Christ personally and enter into an eternity with him. Why would he have done this? I'm told simply because he loves me and he wants me to know how much he loves me. Why did he choose me? We will never understand that one throughout all eternity. And I don't think it's a question we'll be asking. We'll simply be saying thank you that you ever called me. But until that, we live between the two. We live under the curse, yet set free through our faith in Jesus Christ. Set free in our intimacy with God, in that we can now relate to God. But also set free from its eternal effects. That now we can look forward to an eternity with him in his presence. And whilst we live between the two, we catch a glimpse, and it's just a glimpse every now and then, of what it is that lies ahead. Sometimes in worship, you just think, I don't want to open my eyes. Sometimes in your private time and devotion with God, there are times you think, wow, if this is just a hint of what it's like to be in God's presence, bring it on. We're his bride, not a casual group of rabble, but his pure, spotless, beautiful, radiant, clean bride. The people he went through all of this for in order to gather us to spend an eternity with, with him. Tell me, what on earth can this world do to harm you and I? It offers me nothing that may cause me to fear death or difficulty or hardship. It, it offers me nothing that can bring anxiety to me or doubt about who I am, who I'm loved by and where I might go. And it offers me nothing that can stop me worshipping the God who has put this before me as my eternity. It cannot hinder my eternity nor my security in his love. It cannot rob me of my joy for every day as I look ahead to what lies there, nor of my confidence in who I am before him. Neither can it ever divert my gaze from his beauty and his sacrifice if we know Jesus Christ personally as our Lord and Saviour. So as I come to the end of this, and I'm sure I've just hopefully been able to describe a little bit of what is there, let me ask you 
two questions. The first question is, are we living in light of eternity? Every day, every decision, every temptation, every opportunity to doubt or be anxious or fear, are we honestly dealing with it in light of what's coming? We need to live as though the bridegroom is returning tomorrow. That's why the Bible ends where the Spirit and the church say, Come, Lord Jesus. Because after getting a picture, your heart says, Yeah, yeah, come. But then secondly, let me ask you. All this is great and powerful, but it's not just a lever sitting still. In light of what we understand lies ahead, how does that affect our passion and our desire to spread this wonderful message to those who at the moment cannot look ahead to that? But actually we understand they're walking towards something very different. All of God's goodness and his word is not for us to sit comfortably and say, well, that's nice, but it's to motivate us to take his good news to many others who are waiting to be called through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, we just want to say before anything else that we are so grateful so amazed that you would ever call us savers, lovers, set us free, forgive us, and set our feet in eternity. We say, Lord Jesus, may we live always in light of what lies ahead for us, but may we also live with regards to others in light of what may lie ahead for them. May we be motivated to share your gospel and bring others into this wonderful truth for your glory. Amen. Amen.